Welcome to Longevity by Design, a podcast designed to give individuals access to the leading scientific information in the field of longevity. The ability to add years to your life and life to your years needs no opinion. Join us as we ask science to take the wheel. In each episode, Dr. Gil Blander joins a co-host and an industry expert in the field of longevity, shining a light and getting the answers to the key question, how can we live a longer, healthier life? Hello, I'm Ashley Reaver, and I'm joined by Dr. Gil Blander. Welcome to Longevity by Design, how to live a longer, healthier life. We're produced by Inside Tracker, your science-based guide to optimizing your health. Today, we're joined by Dr. Sarah Gottfried. Welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. And uh, so it's a pleasure to have you with us. And it's also a pleasure to be here in the amazing Buck Institute. We are spending the day here and we are interviewing later, later today uh, the CEO of the Buck Institute. And uh, it's, it's a great pleasure to interview uh, two very important and very smart people in one day. So uh, that's our first time, so it's exciting. And uh, uh, off camera, before the recording, uh, we discuss a bit about your history and uh, what have you done. And uh, maybe uh, tell our uh, audience a bit about your uh, scientific career, what, uh, what happened, where have you been, what have you done, and why have you decided uh, to be a, a, a physician that are also doing research and uh, so on. I started as an engineer so I dropped out of a PhD program in bioengineering to go to medical school. And there's a specific reason for that. I had a grandmother that was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. Oh. And I feel that the medical system utterly failed her. So she was diagnosed and basically told, get your, get your estate in order. Hmm. And we have nothing to offer you. She then languished in a, a nursing home for about 18 years. Wow. And so it felt to me as an engineer that there were so many things that could be done to preserve the brain, to keep the brain working uh, facilely, beautifully, impeccably for much longer than my grandmother was able to experience. So that's what really got me interested in science. I still love engineering because I think in some ways engineers are scientists who are maybe more pragmatic. And so I'm right at the interface between uh, scientists and engineer. Yeah, it's very similar to my past in a way. Uh, my a relative of mine passed when I was young and then uh, I decided, okay, I want to understand why we don't live forever. So it's a very similar uh, uh, a, life, a, a lifetime event that uh, completely changed your trajectory, which is... Uh, and then uh, you uh, become, uh, uh, you studied medicine, correct? I studied medicine, so I, we were just talking about Boston, and I was in the Harvard-MIT combined program. So I always intended to be an academic physician. I love research, I feel like that's how we advance the field. I love teaching, I feel like we've got to take care of our community and um, allow them to keep integrating new information. And then I love taking care of patients. So right now I work at Thomas Jefferson University where I'm the director of precision medicine. And I mostly take care of professional athletes and executives. Mm. 
Nice. That's also something that uh, we are doing at Insight Tracker. So we have a lot of uh, <laughs> <laughs> a lot in common uh, in a way, and I think that uh, I'm looking at that in a way that uh, uh, treating the executive and the professional athletes, they are uh, uh, the head of uh, head of the care. Yes. And uh, my goal, uh, our goal, I'm, I'm sure that your goal is to treat everyone, but we need to start somewhere. So let's start with them. They, have, uh, they are intrigued, they understand the, the value, and hopefully everyone will understand, and the price will go down enough that uh, we can uh, do it to everyone. So it's a, it's a great pleasure uh, uh, to have you today. And uh, Ashley. Yeah, how did you decide to focus your practice where you did, on executives and athletes? I'm fascinated by performance. I feel like health span is a big part of that. So I, I had this grandmother with Alzheimer's disease. I also have um, a parent that was diagnosed. And so it still remains probably my greatest passion to, to really understand the brain, the way that the brain talks to the rest of the body and how do, we, how do we really optimize performance as we get older? And by performance, I don't just mean, you know, taking care of the Philadelphia 76ers and um, how they run up and down the court and hopefully win yeah. a championship, but really, how do, we, how do we serve the world in a deep way? So that's what I mean by performance. Awesome. And I'm sure we will dig into brain relationship quite a bit more, uh, but I do want to start with a topic that I know that you are very experienced with, and that's overall hormone health. And I wanted to start with hopefully a somewhat easy question of defining what quote unquote hormone balance is. And the media hormone balance doesn't necessarily, I don't know if it has a scientific basis, but that term is often used. Um, so what does hormone balance mean to you? And is there a better term we should be using that actually comes up in the research? Homeostasis is probably a more scientific term. So this idea that you reach steady state with your hormones, and hopefully that's in a state of health. As a precision medicine physician, I think a lot about health, the transition to pre-disease, like pre-diabetes, and then the transition to disease. And each of those is an upset in homeostasis. So hormone balance is something that I've written about a lot for um, the lay audience because I think in some ways it is more accessible than talking about homeostasis. Sure. But that's really what I mean. Yeah. Gotcha. So the way that you know that you're in hormonal balance is that you're relatively free of symptoms. And there's so many different clusters of hormone imbalances ranging from uh, polycystic ovary syndrome in women with high testosterone, which is akin and very similar to low testosterone in men. Mm -hmm. So that's probably the most common hormone imbalance that women experience, as well as the most common hormone imbalance that men experience. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned uh, uh, male and female and PCOS. So the, the follow-up question is, the hormone imbalance, uh, is it more common in uh, males or females, or it's the same? It's more common in women. So women have more vulnerability. And we go through periods of such dramatic fluctuation that men don't experience. Mm -hmm. So uh, men and women, and I, I want to acknowledge that there's some fluidity here. You know, I'm describing it as a binary yeah. system and it's not. Um, men and women both go through puberty, but women get pregnant. 
They go through the postpartum period, which is a massive shift hormonally. They go through perimenopause and menopause. And men go through this decline in testosterone, but it's much more gradual. Mm -hmm. And it's not associated with many of the downstream sequelae that we see, such as reduced cerebral metabolism in 80% of women over the age of 40. 80%. Why aren't we shouting this from the rooftops, Gil? Yeah, no, no, I agree. And I see in a way, my analogy is the man is basically the the, the less sophisticated machine than the women. (laughs) If you think about it, it's you mentioned that, but you also have the monthly cycle. So we, we are simple, males are simple. And the uh, women are much more complex, so it's much easier to uh, uh, to come uh, with a treatment, with a clinical trial, with uh, uh, um, looking and trying to understand. Much easier to understand men, and instead of coming and say, "Oh, that's more complex," let's be excited, let's uh, pour more money on the women. We are continue to do that, and that's uh, uh, outrageous for me. And uh, I'm very happy that. Uh, you uh, focus a lot of your uh, um, energy on that. Uh, I think that it's uh, uh, it's something that we need to change and we need to understand it and uh, help uh, uh, women as much as uh, we can. And we know that uh, even the cardiovascular disease sign are different from male and female. And yes. uh, nobody talking about that. Yeah. <laughs> and then women, uh, uh, I think that it's the first killer uh, uh, in women, and, mm-hmm. but nobody, especially post-menopause, but nobody is talking about that. That's so can we talk about that for absolutely a moment? Absolutely. <laughs> So I, I love to dig deep into this. And I, I think you're right. It's a both-and conversation. So we need the research on men, those that are assigned male at birth. We need the research on women. And certainly there's been a bias over the past 100-plus years because it's so much easier to yeah. study men. Yeah. But when you learn how to study women who are cycling, women who are perimenopausal, and all bets are off with their hormones because mm-hmm. they fluctu- fluctuate wildly, and then also women in menopause, what we know is that we're seeing cardiovascular and even more broadly cardiometabolic disease younger and younger in women. Mm-hmm. In fact, the, the age group that has the highest rate, the greatest increase in terms of hospitalization for acute heart attack, myocardial infarction, is women between the ages of 35 and 54. So I find that alarming. And there's so many differences in the anatomy as well as the physiology. If you just look at the heart, women have got overall smaller coronary arteries. They tend to have more microvascular disease than men do. Mm. They tend to have different symptoms as a result of that. Mm. So they're more likely to have um, symptoms that wax and wane. It might be instead of the sudden substernal chest pain, like an elephant is sitting on your chest with a heart attack, women have more back pain or nausea or difficulty breathing. And so it's really critical to understand some of these sex differences in the biology, but also some of the gender differences that are socially constructed. There was a fascinating study that was done in Florida where they looked at ER admissions for um, acute heart attack. And they found that the women who saw a female physician had a survival that was two to three-fold higher than the women who saw a male physician. And when you look at the men that were hospitalized with an acute myocardial infarction, it was the same whether they saw a man or a woman as a physician. How do you explain it? I think probably 
at least at the time of that study, which I think was 2019, there was less awareness about the biological differences and how that can map to a different uh, symptom profile. Mm. That and patriarchy. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. That, that, I didn't know that. By the way, last week I uh, spent a few days at the University of Illinois and I met with or, or interviewed for our podcast an uh, expert in uh, exercise physiology and uh, also uh, we, we spent, we deep dive into uh, uh, how, when and how to consume uh, a protein post-exercise. Mm-hmm. And, all. and we also spoke about the difference between male and female. And what I heard from him, and it's interesting for me to hear what you think about it, he said that uh, there are women that are postmenopausal, for them to build muscle is almost impossible. And what uh, I, I took from that is basically all the eight, uh, 40 and less or 45 and less uh, years old women try to build as much muscle then because mm-hmm. after postmenopausal, it's almost impossible for you to, to build it. Uh, what do you think about that? That's, that, that, that? Does it make sense? Was this a man? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I would never say it's impossible. Okay. I'm 56 and I'm gaining muscle. How do you explain that? I, I, I just heard it. I'm not saying <laughs> <laughs> No, definitely. I, I think that what, what he said, it's, it's not, by the way, it's not only in uh, women, it's also in male. He said that mm-hmm. uh, I'm uh, also post uh, 50 and I, I know I'm trying to build muscle and working very hard. So he said for males, for example, uh, when we are, it's okay here to talk about males as well, um, you need to increase the repetition. So if a, a, like a, a younger male need to do, I don't know, three repetition to do something, you need to do six. Mm-hmm. And for women, he said, it might be even more, but it's very, very hard to do it. Uh, because of the uh, change in the hormone balance, he said that somehow it's uh, harder for the muscle to receive the signal and to, and to build the muscle. So I agree with you. It's not like you cannot, but it will be much harder for you. It is harder. So to me, that brings up a couple of points. One is we need to message better that women in perimenopause and premenopausally need to really work on measuring their lean body mass, measuring their skeletal mass, and then tracking it as a time series over time. So I'm a big fan of creating a dashboard with the individuals that I work with, my clients. Mm -hmm. And on that dashboard always is lean body mass as well as body fat. So Mm -hmm. body composition over time. I would say the Probably one of the greatest risks for women, and we're especially vulnerable, is that after menopause, there's this heightened risk of sarcopenia. And so when I think about the hormonal upstream drivers of sarcopenia or loss of muscle mass, I think about testosterone, I think about your muscle mass as an endocrine organ. And I think a lot of people don't think of it that way, Mm -hmm. but really we should. So testosterone starts to decline for some people in their 20s. And so you want to be tracking that. You want, to, you want to notice when you lift weights, and I think probably two-thirds of our activity should be weightlifting for cardiometabolic benefit because yeah. you want to make your, uh, you want your muscles to be so hungry for glucose. You want them to soak up that extra glucose so that you're not a spiky glucose person. So I think testosterone is really critical. And if you notice that you're not seeing a result at the gym, get your hormones checked. You know, track your, 
you know, there's a maybe by the end of this, we can come up with a list of some of the hormones that I think are really critical. Yeah. But I would say testosterone free and total is essential. And what we know, if you look at the studies of health span, the period of time that you feel fantastic and relatively free of disease, we know that it's it's around age 40 that things start to change. And that's where each decade you're going to lose about five pounds of muscle and gain about five pounds of fat unless you do yeah. you know, something about it. No, I, I agree. And uh, actually, uh, related to that, we... Uh, and, and uh, we had a session with you, uh, discussed uh, uh, the addition of a few hormones related to uh, women, uh, estrogen, progesterone, uh, TSH, and other, but uh, I like what you are saying about uh, testosterone because not a lot of women connect testosterone to something that they should be worried about, but they should. Let's and, connect uh, it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and, uh, and uh, uh, I think that, uh, I remember when uh, we started in Tracker and I added testosterone and I, I was trying to find the ranges for uh, testosterone in women. I couldn't find any mm-hmm. data because nobody's measuring testosterone That's in right. women. That's right. Um, so we started, now we have, I don't know, uh, like, I don't know, 40, 50,000 women uh, with testosterone. So we can, we know a lot of, uh, about that, that uh, nobody else has seen uh, before and definitely you can see the decline in testosterone also in women it's not uh, only testosterone is not only for male and yeah. uh, everyone need to know, to know that so I, I i love what you're saying so can we drill down a little bit deeper? absolutely so one of the things we know is that we think of testosterone as this male hormone yeah and yet it is the most abundant hormone in the female body so if you look at your levels that you researched and you look at the concentration compared yeah. to estradiol or progesterone yeah. or dhea the, the level of testosterone is, it's, it's the most abundant mm-hmm. hormone that women have. And so even though our levels are less than what men have, you know, somewhere on the order of 10 times yeah. less, we are exquisitely sensitive to it. So if you are noticing that your sex drive is not what it used to be, we'll talk about women first, then maybe men. If you notice that you're not getting a response to the gym, your muscle mass is declining. Maybe you've got some hair loss, like at the armpits or pubic area. If you've got, um, in women, I think about risk taking, I think about confidence and agency. There was a really interesting study looking at MBA students. Mm-hmm. And women who were the lowest quartile with their testosterone levels were much less likely to take financial risk compared to women that were mm-hmm. in the uh, mid-range to upper, upper uh, quartiles. So I, I think of testosterone in women as such a critical hormone of vitality and certainly it tracks with health span. And I'm not saying, you know, every woman needs to take supplemental testosterone. I think that's an individual decision yeah. with your clinician. But consider it because it really helps bone strength. It helps all these things that we're talking about. And it in men, you know, the the symptoms map a little bit differently. There's a greater risk of erectile dysfunction. There's, of course, the decreased sex drive. There's also more depression, anxiety. And in that situation, we know that testosterone replacement therapy makes a big difference. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, it's it's fascinating that uh, uh, we, we are discussing it and I assume that uh, 99% of our audience uh, don't connect between testosterone and women and uh, uh, testosterone replacement therapy. I never heard about it for women. It's like, uh, I don't know, when maybe Ashley, you heard about it, but uh, I, I haven't. Uh, so it's, uh, uh, who do you recommend to, like, uh, 
what age of women are uh, mostly prone to an issue with the testosterone? Is it uh, premenopausal or postmenopausal? Well, I've seen it premenopausally. The, the type of, I think of phenotype. So the phenotype that has the greatest risk of low testosterone in uh, premenopausal years would be women who've got a lot of chronic stress, mm-hmm. toxic stress. So we know that accelerates the decline in testosterone that tends to start around 28. And that's true for DHEA as yeah. well. There's another phenotype, and that is women who take the birth control pill. So the birth control pill, I think, is the number one endocrinopathy that is iatrogenic, caused by the clinicians who write the prescription. And women are not given full informed consent about this. Sure. And so we know that when you go on the oral contraceptive, it raises this intermediate hormone, sex hormone binding globulin, and that soaks up all the free testosterone. Mm-hmm. And depending on your receptor physiology, depending on CAG repeats, some women are really vulnerable and they develop symptoms as a result of the low testosterone from the birth control pill. And uh, there are other women who've got a very efficient receptor. I think of it more like a Prius type of receptor, and they can go a long way with a small amount of testosterone. But what is especially irksome as a scientist is that we know if you go on the birth control pill and you stop the pill, a year later, your sex hormone binding globulin is still elevated. So I think it's really critical to understand that there are some women running around with low testosterone, and it might have been the birth control pill that they were on years ago. Mm. I will say I am very fortunate to have worked for Inside Tracker because as I transitioned off of that, I got to get my blood work tested every single month, and it was amazing to see how not just your hormone levels, but minerals in your body, certain vitamins in your body. Yes. Um, And we wrote a blog about it. It was maybe six years ago at this point. Um, But there was very little stuff out there. and even, you know, for SHBG, it also depends on the type of hormonal contraception that you're on. And you know, I believe it's high SHBG levels is what can be correlated to blood clots. That's right. Um, for Not everyone, of course, but um, it's a personal decision for sure. But it's, you know, I can remember going to my doctor and saying my SHBG is really high. My HSCRP is off the, you know, off the charts and I don't understand why. And they told me to stop getting my blood tested. Fortunately, <laughs> it was my job <laughs> to research these biomarkers. Right. Um, and then, you know, we did, we were able to put in a lot of recommendations about, you know, if you are taking hormonal contraceptive, it doesn't normalize these levels, but it at least helps to explain why they might be there. Well, you just mentioned a few critical points, and I'm so glad that you did a case series, and I hope that your sex hormone binding globulin got back to normal. It did. <laughs> so one point that I think is critical is to understand that there are multiple micronutrient deficiencies associated with taking the birth control pill. Magnesium, the vitamin Bs. Mm-hmm. Um, the second important point is that we know that the combined oral contraceptive raises inflammatory tone in the body. So typically it raises sex hormone binding globul- uh, sorry, uh, high sensitivity C-reactive protein by about two to three fold. So those things that you observed because you're a great scientist. <laughs> They're right on, and it's in keeping with the literature. And it was terrifying, because when you Google high SHB, or excuse me, high CRP, it's all 
either her tumor somewhere. Yeah. 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 Um, it was super scary. But we fortunately, you know, we had a database of a lot of women. We ended up adding specifically a question to our questionnaire about Great. are you taking not just a hormonal birth control, but also hormone replacement therapy. Um, and then we could do a lot of research with it. And, you know, from that, we saw B12 levels tend to be a lot lower. Magnesium yes. levels tend to be lower. Um, yeah, it was it was wild. And there was just not much out there. So it was really great, you know, speaking about Gilcoast, creating a company that creates science. Yeah. It was such a good opportunity yeah. that we had all of that. So, so Sarah, if we are trying to get, a, a, okay, what is for me for a, a, a premenopausal woman that uh, listen to us today? Would you recommend her to seriously consider if she's on uh, the pill to go out of the pill and try to find other mechanism or not? Yes. So there are some people who take the oral contraceptive because it is preventing them from needing surgery. Mm -hmm. And I think those women, it becomes a risk-benefit alternative discussion. Generally, for people who are on the fence and they're not sure that they want to give up the oral contraceptive, if I then explain that it can shrink your clitoris up to 20%, they pretty much are willing to quit. So I think it depends on the patient's values and what's important to them. But I would say for someone who's perimenopausal, this idea that the birth control pill balances your hormones, I totally disagree with that mm. concept. It's overriding your hormones. It is suppressing the normal rhythms of your body. Yeah. And there are much better ways to navigate some of the challenges and the opportunities of perimenopause. You know, things like if you find that your progesterone is low, which is true for so many women between 35 and 45, we know that chaseberry, which is a herbal therapy, is very effective at raising serum progesterone levels. It even increases life birth rate for women who are trying to get pregnant. So there's a lot of options in terms of how to deal with hormones that might start to get wonky over the yeah. age of 35. Yeah, and uh, uh, actually your story is uh, fascinating. And I think that uh, what is nice today that every woman can do that. Mm -hmm. So uh, what you have done, everyone can do it. It's not like you don't have it. You can use InstaTracker or go to your clinician and basically understand your body. Don't let other to come yeah. and say, oh, it's easy to do it and uh, kick you out of my office. You control your body and uh, understand it and find what is best for you. Yeah. Another marker that was really high and kind of leads into our next question, my cortisol was, you know, in the 30s, it, maybe 35, mm -hmm. 37. It was super high. Mm -hmm. um, and I have always been like a type A stress ball. Working at Inside Tracker, it was nice I got paid, you know, to work there, but it was also very personally rewarding because mm -hmm. it was the first time I objectively saw what my mental process was doing to my physical body. Yes. Um, and of course, you know, some hormonal birth controls can also cause that cortisol level to be high. And chicken or the egg, you know, is, it, is high cortisol causing you to be stressed or is stress increasing your cortisol? But emotional, you know, impacts of hormones, can you talk about that maybe in a little bit more detail as well? Cortisol is critical. You know, it's not a democracy in the body. A lot of people think these hormones that we're talking about cortisol, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, insulin, that you know they, they all sort of have to equal weight. And that's not the case. Cortisol is the highest priority. I would say insulin is as well. But cortisol is, um, I like to call it Michael Cortisolione because it is the dawn and you need it to live. Yeah. So 
You know, most of us know about John F. Kennedy. He had that kind of bronze skin. He had Addison's disease, and he had to take cortisol, Cortef, to function because cortisol is critical for so many life functions like managing your blood sugar, modulating your immune system. And yes, it is the stress hormone, and it's critical to know what your level is and to know how you navigate stress. But a lot of people don't. Mm -hmm. So I love that you had a time series, and I really want to encourage everyone who's listening to us to get a time series because that is one of the key tools that we use in precision medicine to really personalize the way that you assess your vulnerabilities and then work around them. Yeah. So to know that about the effect of the birth control pill on your system, to know about the effect of being, uh, um, what did you say, a stress? I, I call myself now a recovering type A. Yeah, I call, my, I call myself an A minus. Yeah, exactly. Like a minus. Yeah. yeah, type A in recovery. Cortisol is so critical to understand intimately. So I like to explain to my clients that it's not a democracy in the body that there's priorities associated with some of these hormones. Cortisol is one of the highest priorities. It's up there with insulin. Whereas these other sex hormones like estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, they're not essential for life. So cortisol is critical for blood sugar regulation, for modulation of the immune system, and it's the main hormone of the stress response. So a lot of people will manage cortisol beautifully. I don't have many of them in my practice, but I would say occasionally I'll see an executive, certainly pro athletes who are able to do that. I assume that you don't see them in the practice because they are not coming to you. They don't need your help. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, it's, uh, you know, somewhere around 90% of the clients that I take care of are dysregulated with their yeah, cortisol response. Sense. So I usually start with a serum cortisol, but that's measuring total cortisol, mm -hmm. not free cortisol. So I... I tend to do uh, salivary testing. I think that's the most proven, most validated. For looking at saliva, I like to do a cortisol awakening response where you measure it first thing in the morning, 30 minutes later, 60 minutes later. And then I like to do a diurnal cortisol at four points during the day and sometimes in the middle of the night. Yeah. So when I measured cortisol in myself for the first time, I started my time series with cortisol in my mid-30s. And it was after I went to my primary care doctor and I had a list of woes. I had a baby a couple years before, couldn't lose the baby weight. I had a lot of belly fat. I was working full time in what I call McMedicine. I was seeing about 40 patients a day and I just was stressed. You know, I wanted to be home with my baby. I was working and I had no sex drive. And I went to my doctor and he first said, exercise more and eat less, mm -hmm. which is utterly wrong. And then he said, why don't you go on a birth control pill? Because that'll help your hormonal problems. Also wrong. And then he said, why don't you start a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor? Also wrong. So initially I was upset or didn't feel like my concerns were really heard by him. But then I got angry, the kind of righteous indignation that can move mountains. And that's really where I started to write books because mm -hmm. I felt like so many people are suffering in this regard and they're, they're being told the wrong things by 
mainstream medicine. Sure. So I left his office, went to the lab. I had a, a cortisol level that was in the 30s. My hormones were a hot mess. My progesterone at that time was low. I was just starting some perimenopausal symptoms. My estrogen was way too high. And my insulin was really high. My insulin was like in the 30s and I was fasting and my glucose was 105. Mm. I basically had prediabetes. And that doctor was not testing me for any of those things. So that cortisol that was in the 30s was about two to three fold higher than it should have been. And you could argue that it was, you know, this disagreement with my clinician, but I think I was running around with the cortisol that high and it was stimulating my belly receptors. It was driving my immune system toward dysregulation. I think in terms of the network of networks in the body and especially the pine system, the psychoimmunoneuroendocrine system, And for me, all of those systems were dysregulated by the toxic stress that I was feeling. Mm -hmm. So so, um, I think that uh, uh, now everyone understands that uh, cortisol is uh, very important. And what, uh, uh, again, for our uh, Atom audience, what what would you recommend or what are you recommending for your uh, uh, patient? Uh, when you see a high cortisol, and specifically if there are some life, lifestyle uh, changes, because we we strongly believe, let's start with lifestyle and later, later on uh, provide a, a drug. So what, what would you recommend to them? So I've talked about maybe 99 lifestyle changes that you can do in my book, starting with the hormone cure. Okay. So what I think is important, Gil, is to come up with an a la carte menu that means the most for you. So for me, it's meditation every morning, non-negotiable. It's yoga. I started practicing yoga when I was five. Thank goodness, because it's such a sanctuary for me. But I would also say those things didn't get my cortisol where I really needed them to be. And so I use some supplements. I think the most proven in randomized trials are phosphatidylserine, rhodiola, and uh, omega-3s. But I also think you can't out-supplement a life that's full of toxic stress. Mm -hmm. More recently, I've been interested in more novel solutions. So I've gone deeper with breath work. I started transcendental meditation when I was 17 and in college. I think that uh, we also have to assess trauma because trauma and toxic stress is such a common cause of a dysregulated hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, the control system for cortisol. And if you can bear with me, I think of it a little more broadly than that because there's so much interdependence between control systems for your hormones. I think of it as the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal thyroid gonadal gut axis. So gonads, testes of men, ovaries and women. So. What else can you do? I'm a fan of resolution of trauma, and that generally has to be a more somatic-based, trauma-informed type of therapy. 
and sometimes psychedelic assisted therapy. Yeah. No, and I, and I like what you're saying because at the end you need the, you can either uh, treat the problem, as you said, find the, your trauma or find what you don't like to do and don't do it. If you don't like your job, find a different job. If you don't like your spouse, find a different spouse and so on. Uh, I'm, not say, I'm not saying to anyone to do that. Um, and <laughs> Although the, it can be very healing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but the bottom line is that uh, that's the, the source. And then you can you, uh, take supplement all of that, but that's uh, only... Uh, you know, co controlling the, the effect of the source. So if you find the source and treat it, maybe then you won't need even supplement. That's and, right. Uh, uh, that's, a, that's a very good uh, uh, point. And uh, I also like the, uh, your analogy between uh, 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 cortisol and insulin. And uh, we, we are seeing, uh, again, we are also testing uh, uh, insulin. We are seeing that uh, uh, insulin, and I'm sure that uh, you will agree with me, is uh, in a way a, a, a fair sign of uh, uh, going into prediabetes. So you, you might have your A1C okay, and you might have your uh, uh, fasting glucose okay, but the insulin is starting to go up, meaning uh, your uh, beta cells are producing insulin, producing, producing, and then they will uh, finish producing. It's like uh, uh, asking a factory to continue to run in 100% uh, uh, for, for years, it will, it will stop working at the end, like the stress that you might have from the... So, so I think that, uh, 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 I don't think that uh, our medical community using enough, uh, looking enough on insulin, that's uh, and it, it's similar to what you said about the other thing about the breast control, uh, birth control, and so on. That we are uh, in a way uh, we have our dogma for our physician. We're going, by, but we're not thinking enough about uh, 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 the end user and trying to understand the root cause of the. Mm -hmm. So, thank you for uh, raising all of that. Well, root cause analysis, I think, is our future. It's really our only hope. I was taught at superb medical centers mostly to treat disease. Yeah. It was not a health-based uh, system that I learned. And I was also taught how to deal with symptoms, sometimes mask symptoms. Yeah. And when you do that, you're not going upstream to the root cause, which I think is so critical. And I really like this point you're making about insulin. In fact, this is my area of uh, the most research activity right now, looking at what are some of those early signals that indicate a shift from the homeostasis of health to the dyshomeostasis of prediabetes. Yeah. And insulin is one of the earlier signals, especially postprandial insulin and how jagged the spike is. But there's other important factors too. So I like to really collect dense data sets. I like to look at continuous glucose monitoring. I like to use wearables yeah. and be able to track kind of the whole ecosystem. And we know from some of the observational studies that have been done that insulin, the insulin signal, changes somewhere around seven to 13 years before the glucose signal changes. Mm -hmm. So in conventional medicine, we tend to check fasting glucose, we check hemoglobin A1C, and yet that can often be normal. And in fact, there was a study by Michael Snyder looking at healthy people who screened negative for mm -hmm. prediabetes, and he found that if you put a continuous glucose monitor on those folks, about 15% are diagnosed with prediabetes yeah. versus the static snapshot that you get once a year with your primary care doctor. And about 2% have diabetes. 
Yeah, no, I, I agree. It's uh, we see again. We see it in our database. We our our users supposed to be healthy, and we have a few hundreds of uh, diabetic that we found that they are diabetic. They yes. didn't know about that. So again, the knowledge is the power. But also, I, I like the point about prevention. And uh, the healthcare system right now is focused on treatment of disease. What we are talking here is uh, completely about prevention. Let's. Uh, like the insulin is a good example. Let's find that your insulin is a bit higher and then let's find the root cause. And it might be the, uh, the cortisol. You might be too stressed. So if you remove the stress, you might not be diabetic. Mm -hmm. And think about it. Instead of uh, then uh, 10 years later, you will need to start injecting uh, insulin and all that. Why? Why to do that? If you, if, if you, know, if you have the knowledge earlier, you can, uh, you can act and uh, make your baseline and continue to look at the baseline. And even if you can see that it's uh, going up, even if it's not uh, in the out of normal range, that's a red light and uh, try to, uh, to find intervention to change the direction. It's so empowering, I think, to, to start to dive into these time series. And you know, even that term might put some people off. What we're talking about is checking your, your insulin over time, just yeah. to make sure that it's within the normal range. I like a fasting insulin between four and seven. Yeah. So it's, you know, you can choose where you want to start in terms of creating a dashboard. But I think for most people, we've already talked about body composition, like your lean body mass and your fat. And I would say insulin and fasting glucose are really critical too. Yeah, no, I 100% I, I agree. How do you, what do you recommend for a, a body composition? Do you use DEXA or just a scale or how do you do that? So I, I think DEXA is the gold standard. It's what we use for our, our uh, research studies. But I found that the trends that you see with some of the home monitors that uh, use impedance can also be accurate. They may not be as accurate as a DEXA, but mm -hmm. I think watching trends over mm -hmm. time can be very helpful. So I'm a fan of using whatever means necessary that is convenient and is going to be something you can track, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, as densely yeah. as possible. I also, you know, in the clinics where I work, we tend to use uh, the in-body machine. So there's lots of different ways that we can yeah. measure it. Yeah, and even I, I can give an example of myself. I'm hopping uh, on the scale every day. And if I see that uh, I, I gained some weight uh, from yesterday, I know that uh, today I need to uh, consume maybe a bit less uh, a cheating uh, food. But if I'm going down, maybe today is, is okay to do that. And in a way, you cannot be a saint all the time. So even a, a simple thing as a, a scale can give you a lot of information if you are following it and looking at the trend. And DEXA is amazing. I love DEXA because there, there is so much information, but you cannot do it every day. You need to go to a machine and maybe the radiation is not, doesn't make sense to have the radiation every day. But once a year, I think that everyone should do DEXA. I, 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 1%. And it's not too expensive. You can do it in $100. It's not like, That's the, right. it's not like it's $5,000. It's $100. Everyone can do it. Um, so. So the other thing I would say about your scale is that I would be curious about inflammation. So I think it's not just the food you consume, it's also the way that the food is talking to your yeah. cells. Yeah. So an inflammation can cause a little weight gain. Yeah, no, I agree, I agree. I wanna to touch back on cortisol for one second, just because of where you focus in your practice on uh, you know, professional athletes or executives. Um, you know, when we first started, we worked with a lot of professional athletes and 
you know, everyone was kind of a little bit defensive if one of their markers came back and yes. wasn't within the normal yes. range. And, you know, the thought process was, well, you know, to be an executive or to be a top athlete, you, you know, maybe you got there because your cortisol level is high. You have a little bit more drive. So why would I want to drop that down if maybe it's something that gave me an advantage? And I would love to hear your perspective on that. Well, I think the question is, is it adaptive? So, you know, when I think of the, the National Basketball Association players that I work with, I know their cortisol is high on game night. You know, there's some game nights where it's higher than others. Certainly during the championships, you can see it in the level of play that there's just a greater intensity. There's more ball movement. There's mm -hmm. more, um, you know, cortisol when it's doing its job really helps you focus and helps you, you know, it increases the blood flow to your to your legs and to your muscles. Yeah. So we want that. We want to have that focus and, and clarity and uh, precision performance. And, you know, what I find with professional athletes is that for the most part, their labs are quite optimal. The things that have been surprising to me have been uh, glucose and insulin because mm -hmm. some of these players eat at Chick-fil-A yeah. until I get my hands on them. We, we, have, seen, we have seen that. <laughs> <laughs> we, we have seen the, the same thing yeah, as, as you all talking about, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so they, you know, they're Maseratis mm -hmm. and they're, they're eating at Chick-fil-A. Yeah. And so, you know, we've got to, that then becomes a motivator, I think, sure. when you see this high inflammatory tone, which pretty much every elite athlete has, because yeah. we know that high training load will increase intestinal permeability and it'll lead to more inflammatory processes. And so we want to do things to help with recovery and to, to slow that down. We also know that about 40% of performance is genetic. Mm. It's a little higher than you know sure. what we see with chronic disease. And so there are some players who are genetically programmed to be more reactive to the environment. Most of them are warriors. <laughs> and so that high cortisol serves them well. Sure. Yeah. We, we have seen also, uh, going back to Ashley's uh, discussion about, uh, let's say, not poor athlete, but uh, very active uh, uh, people that uh, uh, spend a lot of time on the athletic activity and I see them in, in the gym, we've seen it in the CrossFit athletes. Uh, we've seen that uh, some of the women, uh, premenopausal women, they are uh, losing so much fat that uh, in a way they are getting to early menopause. Yes. And uh, what have you seen that and uh, what do you think about that? Is it uh, something that they should be worried about or not? Well, there's a there's an amount of fat that you need, essential fat, to be able to function, to be able to produce hormones, because the backbone of, of sex hormones is cholesterol, yeah. it's fat. And so if you think of the sex hormone pathways, it goes from cholesterol to pregnenolone, and then it either goes down to progesterone or to cortisol, or it turns left and goes to DHEA and to the androgens and the estrogens. Yeah. And so for women who are losing too much body fat, you can have what's known as the female athletic triad, which is where you can drop your estradiol so much that uh, you're not menstruating and you start to have bone loss. Yeah. Um, so I don't think the triad is healthy. I think for the most part, we wanna hover around a level of 
Um, it depends on the woman, but somewhere between about 12 and 18% at a minimum in terms of essential body fat. Yeah. So, and, and some of them don't understand it and they are so f- uh, mission focused that yes. they, they don't understand what will be the, let's say, the consequence after that in 10, 20, 30, 40 years. So what are the consequences uh, of that uh, if you get into, let's say, the, this early menopause? What is the effect on the, you, you mentioned that they are starting to lose bone, which is bad, but what, what, what else do, or oh, it's very similar to normal menopause. They, they see what, uh, uh, let's say, 50 plus women are seeing uh, in the real menopause. So early or premature menopause is associated with a number of risks. Some of them, as you said, are the same risks that you have for someone who goes through menopause naturally at the mean age of 51 or 52. So things like osteoporosis, cardiovascular disease, uh, greater risk of diabetes, um, higher blood pressure, um, the whole group of mood changes and also uh, sleep disruption. So we know that depression and insomnia occurs at double rates in females versus men, and a lot of it is related to perimenopause and menopause. Mm-hmm. And when you start sleeping loss, that just sets up a whole host of uh, negative impact that can lead to a shortening of health span. Mm-hmm. So when you go through it early, I'm gonna go back to the brain because I think in my mind, the brain is maybe the most important organ to be paying attention to when we're talking about hormones. We know that women, for instance, who go through uh, surgical menopause before age 40, they have a much higher risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. They've got a greater risk of this cerebral hypometabolism, kind of less blood flow to the brain and less utilization of glucose as a fuel, it starts to falter in 80% of women over the age of 40. And so that can happen earlier in women who don't have the estradiol that they need to continue to function. So there's a lot of different problems associated with it. I would say bone loss is also critical. We think of that as, you know, I'm just imagining as you're talking about these women, someone who's, who's really lean, maybe even kind of sinewy, because they don't have much, much fat. I think of you know marathon runners and ultra marathon runners and yeah. just women who like to be on the leaner side. And if they don't have sufficient estradiol, their bones are gonna be weaker. Osteoporosis is a, a really serious problem. You know, I think, of, I think of this question of what do you want your health for? And maybe I'll ask you guys that. So Gil, what do you want your health for? I want to live forever, so my health should be always in the optimal way as, as I can for, for life. That's, that's my life goal. But uh, I think that those women, in a way, they are looking uh, at, at their nose and saying, yes. okay, I want to be the strongest uh, woman in the world. But okay, so we'll become that. After that, you need to live another 50 years or hopefully more. And uh, you should think about that as well. So it's the same as what you discuss about the NBA players. Uh, you should think about, okay, yeah, the, the, this game, even if it's the, uh, the final, is uh, very important, but you have another season. So yeah. it's not enough to perform, I will take the NBA, to perform well, uh, you need to perform well on the, at the fourth quarter, you need to perform well at the uh, postseason, but you also need to perform well to have career longevity. 
That's you right. don't want to, uh, Le- LeBron James is playing, I don't know, 20 years. He's thinking about career longevity. It's not, uh, most of the players don't get into that. Um, and he's not going to Chick-fil-A. He's not going to Chick-fil-A, but also is LeBron James, there is one. I, I'm, I'm looking at myself. I cannot run marathon in uh, two, two hours. I, I don't think that uh, I want to, but what I want to is to run. Uh, my marathon is to run as long as I can and be the, have the health span as, as good as possible. And I think that that's a goal that everyone, every human should have. Like uh, our goal is to live the best that we can as long as we can. And in the middle, yeah, you have a, 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 maybe a sidetrack, oh, I want to win the NBA final. That's okay, you win. But after that, you still have 50 years. So everyone should take everything in proportion. The lady that uh, have a, a pre-menopause because they are losing too much fat, or uh, the basketball player that get injured and then he cannot play anymore. Think about that. Everyone should think about that. And another point about those ladies that we've seen is that they also woke up like, I don't know, 5 a.m., 4 a.m. to go uh, for a run or for weightlifting. And uh, I think that another uh, point that I would like to discuss with you is uh, sleep and how underrated is sleep. And uh, people need to understand, maybe uh, give us your, uh, 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 how how do you see sleep and what are the benefits of sleep and what are the drawbacks of uh, uh, sleeping too little? Sleep is as close to a panacea as we have. And I don't use that word lightly as a scientist, but I feel like it's it's so critical for recovery. It's so critical for your cardiometabolic health. It's the time that your growth and repair hormones are active, such as growth hormones, such as uh, testosterone, DHEA. And I I think, you know, in a more simplistic way, if we get back to hormones for a moment, I think in terms of the wear and tear hormones like cortisol, and then I think of the growth and repair hormones, the anabolic hormones like testosterone and growth hormone. And so there's this other thing that happens with the glymphatic system where basically your brain gets shampooed and a lot of the junk and debris and, you know, kind of the mess as a result of all the cellular operations gets cleared away. And so if you don't have your lymphatic system working on your behalf each night, you're more likely to accumulate toxins and free radicals and other problems. Mm -hmm. So I think sleep is critical. We know that one night of bad sleep will impact your cortisol the next day. It'll impact your insulin. It'll make you crave carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. It just sets up kind of this this domino effect of making lousy decisions. You might be more likely to go to Mm Chick-fil-A if you don't sleep well. So what I try to do with my clients is I try to understand, okay, where are you right now at baseline? Do you have a good sense of your deep sleep, your REM sleep, how many interruptions you have, your total sleep? What do you do when you travel? How do you deal with jet lag? Are you getting sufficient recovery? Are you able to perform at the level that you want? And also, What's your recovery process like? And so I tend to use wearables. I find that they're really helpful for keeping people honest and accountable. And so lots of different ways to do that. I happen to like the ones that are the most proven, like the Aura Ring. But there's lots of different ways that you can yeah. track sleep. So I think it's critical. And you know, part of my job as a clinician is to do everything within my power to assess it. And then in a collaborative way, yeah. Yeah. No, and mm-hmm. I agree with you about uh, sleep, and uh, I think that uh, 
for me, every, every day, uh, I also have Aura Ring, and every morning mm-hmm. I wake up and look at my Aura Ring, and yeah. then I, uh, uh, based on that, I'm uh, 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 starting to uh, plan my day. And by the way, Insta Tracker is connected to Aura Ring, and we have some recommendation based on that. And the, the preparation to the sleep, the day, before, the, the day before the sleep is the time that you prepare to the sleep. So yes. you had a, 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 a bad REM sleep or deep sleep. You can, uh, there are some interventions that are very personal for you. What should you do? Uh, you, there, there is a lot of uh, sleep hygiene that uh, we can, the three of us can discuss about it for uh, five hours and uh, <laughs> uh, maybe we'll have another episode about that. But uh, you need to prepare for that. And uh, uh, I think that uh, uh, not enough of us are uh, paying attention to that. The example of the jet lag is uh, amazing. Uh, I came from uh, 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 Massachusetts to uh, San Francisco uh, yesterday, so I uh, uh, designed my day in a way that I will try to uh, uh, feed the best sleep that I could. I, I, I woke up at uh, 4 a.m., but I went to sleep at 9 a.m., at 9 p.m., so, so I got uh, enough sleep. It was uh, okay. It wasn't amazing, but it what was... What was your sleep score? It was, I can show you, I think that was 82 or something. That's I usually, pretty good. Yeah, usually at 90, because, and everyone that look at me say, how can you do that? Because I'm, all the day I'm, uh, so for me, it's not amazing, but it, it was okay. Um, and I'm flying back on the red eye, so I have a, a specific shell that uh, have like a, a hood with a, a cover to my uh, uh, eyes, and I can sleep uh, four or five hours on the airplane just with that. And basically, from the moment that I uh, uh, hop on the plane, I'm putting that, no food, nothing, just going to sleep and trying to sleep as much as I can. And I think that a lot of people are drinking alcohol, uh, watching TV until 2 a.m., waking... Your food, scrolling, yeah, uh, texting, texting, uh, watching all movie, whatever, <laughs> and uh, then waking up at five a.m. and going for a run. And I will never woke up at five a.m. to for a run. The earliest that I will wake up, if I can, is six six thirty. Um, and I think that uh, uh, I one hundred percent agree with you. It's something that, uh, and you don't need Insta Tracker for that. It's a common sense. Just uh, follow the common sense and uh, sleep better, and a lot of those issues that you might have will disappear. That's right, and I do think that wearables add a layer of understanding and accountability mm-hmm. that I think you would otherwise miss. Would yeah. you agree with that? Absolutely. I think that, again, it depends on the person. Uh, you need to be a curious person that likes data. There are some people, I, I don't know if you see it in your practice, but I've seen people that they don't like data and mm-hmm. they scare them, they scare them and make them nervous. But uh, if you, but, but that's the best way, the best way to go. Uh, you, you see the reality, you, you see your data, and then you intervene based on that. So I think that for most of us, yes, if you scale from the data, I, I don't know who can help you. That's uh, it's. Uh, when we started a few years ago, I remember we tested an uh, MBA team. It wasn't the 76ers, but they had this new class of recruits that they could not get to go to sleep. Yes. Yeah, they had just got this big contract. They have their they big new house. Of dollars. Yes. They got yes. the best gaming systems, and yes. they'd be up till two or three playing. And then, right. like they're getting, you know, they could still shoot, so it was fine. It was the before wearables, like Fitbit, was the only you know thing mm. that was really out, and they didn't track sleep yet. But that was the first data point. Your cortisol's high. You're not making it. Or you know, we have a lot of ultra marathoners or triathlons yeah. that triathletes that work with us, and I can make it on five and a half hours. But yeah. it's nice to have that objective data point that wearables can yeah. give people much easier of. No, you can't. 
Yeah, and, exa- and a good example about if we are staying with the NBA team or any other team, uh, we help them to try to find, because you finish the game, let's say at 10 p.m., uh, they go to take a shower and then, uh, and then eat, and then it's already midnight, and then they, they need to fly to the next mm-hmm. uh, city. So what we try to work with them, why do you need to fly today? Go to sleep at 10 midnight, wake up at 8 a.m., and then they fly at, uh, I don't know, at uh, 10 or 11, and then you, you slept there, you'll arrive to the arena later, but uh, you are fresher. So even uh, So that makes sense for you, but what they found is that they party if they don't fly out that night. Yeah. <laughs> they go Dennis Rodman. Okay. So we don't want that. Yeah. yeah. That, it's true for you, yeah. but maybe yeah. not the. But I, it's, it's again, it's, uh, it's one intervention that you can do. Um, uh, I'm not sure that it's fit for all teams, but uh, it depends of uh, how, or maybe take them to, to a hotel in Boston, if you're in Boston, and then fly later. Uh, but, but I think that there are some interventions that you can do, and I think that you're looking at the team. The, looking at the team is like looking at your family in a way. Um, if uh, uh, your spouse staying uh, until 2 a.m. and uh, drinking alcohol and party, it's very hard for you as, a, as her spouse to... Uh, to change it, or if uh, you have a crappy food at home, it's very hard for you to change. So mm-hmm. it's it's not a, we are not living in a, 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 a isolation. We are part of a, a group, a family, friends. Uh, if you have a friends that are going party all the time and drinking a lot, maybe you find a different friend that mm-hmm. like to go cycling or uh, do puzzles and go yeah, to bed yeah. early. No, um, <laughs> seriously, yeah. I, I think that uh, uh, because it's very hard for you uh, in. Uh, uh, a social setting to change it. You, mm-hmm. you need to... So I think that there are uh, multiple layers of uh, 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 changes that you need to find in order to optimize yourself. And it's hard. A lot of time friends coming to me and say, hey, let's go uh, play uh, poker at uh, 2 a.m. No, I don't want to play poker. <laughs> I, I prefer to sleep. Um, so anyway, that's... Uh, well, you're setting up an, a really important point, which is the end of one experiment. You know, when I, when I went through Harvard Medical School, I was taught this hierarchy of evidence that expert opinion, anecdotal information is the lowest quality, then there's uh, case studies, retrospective, then there's observational studies that are prospective, then there's the randomized trial, but even above the randomized trial is the end of one experiment because that allows us to individualize, it allows us to look at something like sleep and to start making interventions to see if they're impactful. So I, you know, what I love in terms of time series is that that then allows you to do these end of one experiments. And it might sound kind of, you know, scientific end of one experiments, but people do these all the time without mm-hmm. calling them end of one experiments. Absolutely. And what nice about the wearable that you receive uh, the data every day. So blood test, you cannot, unless you have a, a, a CGM, but it's only for glucose, you cannot see the data all the time. While the wearable, you can see your sleep, you can see the resting heart rate, VO2 max, and HRV, and so on. And we can continue to discuss it. Wait. Um, so uh, then you can uh, basically try to, oh, okay, I, I gain a bit weight. I, I will uh, modify my behavior today. I, uh, my REM sleep wasn't good. Okay, I will modify it. Um, so I'm 100% with you, and I think that we have a lot of tools today. I think that uh, what is hard for, uh, let's say, not uh, a scientific person as the three of us is to get all this information and process it. And so that's why they are coming to an expert like you or coming to InstaTracker to basically give them some uh, uh, support because it's, it's hard for someone that is not scientific to start. But I think that after they uh, receive enough uh, 
support from us, I think that every uh, a person that is uh, uh, a smart person, let's say, can, can do it by himself and uh, yes. manage that. And yes. Well, I think it requires a team approach. Yeah. It requires a, generally a clinician who's knowledgeable, maybe a health coach. Yeah. Um, and then we also need better systems where we're managing the inputs and outputs and making it meaningful yeah. for our clients. Because unless it's meaningful, unless it speaks to their values, I don't think people are going to change their behavior, yeah. which is really the hardest part in all of this. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. So uh, during my trip to Chicago, we have a, a scientific advisor that she's a, a behavioral scientist. And uh, I spent a, a, a two hours with her. And uh, I think that uh, if we are looking at the, uh, the wellness domain or the digital health, there are uh, plenty of uh, apps. But most of them are not looking, and they're looking at the science and the technology and making, I don't know, you can get uh, uh, badges and all of that. But they are not uh, uh, focusing enough, and I think that it's also for Insert Tracker, we need to do more about the behavioral science. Because if you want to change behavior and you will uh, uh, continue to use it for life, what have we done? Okay, so two weeks you've been okay, but then you drifted back. So I think that uh, uh, something like the behavioral science and how to implement a good behavior and remove a bad behavior, I don't think that we are doing good enough job. We, I mean, all the industry in that, re that regard. Well, that's certainly true in conventional medicine as yeah. well. Absolutely. I mean, you look at our healthcare costs in the U.S., and 70% of them are for costs for issues that are preventable. Yeah. So we need to do a better job. It's bankrupting us. Yeah, yeah. And we are not getting to our, uh, uh, we are not uh, uh, meeting our potential. And no. why? We can, we can live hopefully 10, 20 years more and uh, 10, 20 years uh, more being healthy and not sick. And uh, we, we are losing that. Yeah. Ashley, what do you want your health for? Your health uh, I would love to do the things I like doing for as long as possible. No, like, I, like what? Exercise? Well, not every exercise. <laughs> I love hiking. Okay. Um, going on very long walks and being able to play and just enjoy my life, travel. Yeah. Um, and you know that, when you mentioned that, that brought up a, you know, something, a lot of people try a lot of fad diets to mm -hmm. lose weight, not necessarily thinking long-term, but most of those types of diets, not only are they not sustainable, but they take their health for longevity in the opposite direction. Yeah. Um, and I always, you know, just try and remind people, you're trying to live longer, this isn't gonna help you do that. Um, but we're, as Gil said, you know, you can't see so far People can only see so far, they can't necessarily look out into the distance of how those habits impact them long-term. That's right. And we don't have a lot of long-term data on sure. many of the diets that are considered fats. Um, you know, really we've got the best evidence for the Mediterranean diet. Yeah. But that doesn't work for everyone. You sure. know, when I follow a Mediterranean diet, I gain weight. I'm just someone who has that kind of response to eating legumes and sure. too many carbohydrates. But I also think that the ketogenic diet is really well proven for somewhere around four weeks to 12 weeks. And once you get beyond that, you're, there's fewer randomized trials and sure. you're kind of on your own. And the impact on things like your microbiome yeah. is really unclear. Yeah. And it's also very hard to stick with that for long. I, I don't, I, there are some people, but the majority of us, it will be very hard for us to I stick in a ketogenic diet mm -hmm. for more than 12 weeks. It's tough. It's very tough. Yeah. Um, and leaning into that, I think, you know, we just don't have research for so much stuff. Yeah. Um, I had a son a year ago. The levels of nutrients that you should take in 
in the postpartum period breastfeeding or not. We, you can't do research there, so we don't really know them. That's but, right. But, you know, menopause is, is really similar. And, um, you know, Dr. Jennifer Garrison, who works here at the Buck Institute, is focusing a lot of her aging research on menopause. Um, and, you know, earlier in the conversation, you know, we talked about how difficult it is to use female subjects because they are so much more complex. And I was wondering if you could talk maybe a little bit more about ways that you could do research. Like, what are some of the things that we really should be controlling so that we can't just say, you know, women are too difficult. So let's just treat them like little men, maybe. <laughs> right. Well, menopausal women are easy because they're not cycling. Sure. It's the premenopausal women and the perimenopausal women that are difficult. And I would say the perimenopausal are maybe the hardest of all. So the way that you control for it is you have to have a large enough population that you can and maybe track estradiol levels, progesterone levels, testosterone levels, insulin, cortisol, so that you have a sense over, you know, a, a theoretical 30-day cycle, what are some of the confounders? What are some of the drivers, the co-variables mm-hmm. that need to be considered? But this question of what's the optimal diet, I think is in some ways the wrong question. I think you have to personalize and you have to figure out, okay, what's the optimal diet for you for me, yeah. as you get older? Yeah. What sure. is for me, yeah. What is for you? Yeah. And so for me at 56, I'm obsessed with lean body mass. And so I'm eating more protein than maybe I ever have in my life because I really want to make sure that, you know, I want my health span so that I can see how my kids turn out. Mm-hmm. I want to know my grandchildren. I want to go to my great-grandchildren's weddings. My great-grandmother came to my wedding, and I I want that. She flirted shamelessly with every man in the room, and I want that too. How old was she? She was 97 at that time. Wow, and uh, what was her lifespan? Her lifespan? So she died in her sleep a few months after the wedding, not on a single medication, and practicing yoga, still able to stick her foot behind her head. That's wow. amazing. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's amazing that uh, basically her lifespan and health span was well uh, exactly the same. That's uh, what I think everyone wants. We don't want to lie on the bed and uh, have a lot of uh, mm-hmm. a tube connecting to our body. That's not fun. No. So, so maybe uh, we uh, we would like to maybe spend a couple of minutes on uh, HRT, which is uh, uh, I think a very important. Uh, uh, um, issue for uh, uh, perimenopausal and postmenopausal, and I think that there is a lot of confusion there, and I know that uh, it's part of your expertise. So, can you give us some uh, uh, advice for, let's say, a woman that she's a perimenopausal or a, a postmenopausal, and maybe a bit of ammunition when she's going to her, a, a physician, and uh, what, what should they discuss, the two of them? Well, first I would say what you measure improves. And so get a measurement. You know, really assess where you are in terms of a hormone panel. And there are some women who go to their clinician and they say, hey, I heard this podcast with Inside Tracker and I want to do a hormone panel. Yeah. And the doctor will say to them, no, your hormones vary too much. It's not worth measuring them. And yet, if The woman before her was 34 and trying to get pregnant, and she was having difficulty getting pregnant, maybe for a year. They will measure every single hormone, testosterone, estradiol, progesterone, FSH. They will look at all of the hormones. So why is it 
stable enough that you can measure it in a woman who's trying to get pregnant, and yet it's not stable enough in someone who's perimenopausal or menopausal. So it's why, a double why, standard. Why, why is it? Why do you think it is? Because we, our conventional healthcare system is motivated to get women pregnant. Mm. And so it's just the way that the insurance system reimburses. Mm. I believe the science is the same. Yeah. And so it's worth, I mean, yes, if you measure it first thing in the morning, it's going to be more accurate than if you measure it later in the day. Okay. There's certain times during a menstrual cycle where, you know, estradiol peaks around day 12. It's got another small peak at day 21. Progesterone for most women peaks around day 21, 22, 23. So yes, there's certain days that I think are really critical. But don't accept that double standard from your clinician. Okay, so first measure, what is the next step that you should The do? next is to do an inventory of symptoms. Okay. So I, I like to track, as I confessed, I'm obsessed with brain health. So I like to track processing speed, brain fog. I like to process um, cognitive function. So I do cognitive testing about every six months just to make sure that I'm on top of this. There's about 100 different symptoms associated with perimenopause and menopause. So you can pick maybe your top five or 10 and track those over time. But certainly some of the things we've talked about today, like sleep, sex drive, muscle mass, those are critical to be thinking about. What has happened, unfortunately, you know, when I first started in 1989 in medicine, at that time we were proselytizing hormone replacement therapy. We were basically trying to shove it down the throats of most women because we thought from the nurse's health study that it was really beneficial, that it yeah. reduced cardiovascular disease, the number one killer in men and women. And then the Women's Health Initiative was published in 2002, and millions and millions and millions of women stopped their hormone therapy. And now the pendulum, I think, has swung too far away from hormone therapy. And there are so many women whose sleep is suffering, whose bones are getting weaker, who have lost their confidence and agency and sex drive. They've shut down shop. And that's not right either. Yeah. So many women are candidates for hormone therapy, and they don't know it. So we have to educate the clinicians, and we really need to educate the consumer to be asking for this and demanding it. Go to another clinician yeah, if you're not getting what you want. So, so in a way, HRT is a, a, it's not a, a slam dunk, a, either taking it or not, a, doing it or not doing it. In a way, it's more like assess the data, understand the symptom, and then together with the clinician, you need to discuss or agree whether the risk are uh, higher than the benefit or vice versa, and based on that, uh, have a plan. That's, that's right. That's right. That's right. So you have to, you know, not everyone is a candidate yeah. for hormone therapy. So you want to be able to assess that. You yeah. know, are you someone who's got a history of blood clots? Do you, um, you know, are there other, do you have a breast cancer diagnosis or history? So there's things that you yeah. have to consider to see if you're a good candidate. Okay. How about some of the forms? You know, pellets are not FDA approved, but some mm -hmm. people, and I even know doctors, still prescribe mm -hmm. them and recommend them versus, you know, a pack that looks very similar to birth control. Like right. What are the different, or shots, I don't know if that's even a thing, what are the forms of HRT? So for women, the way I think of it is transdermal or topical estrogen. And there's lots of FDA approved versions of that. You can use an estrogen patch, which is mm -hmm. what I use. You can use a gel. You can use a cream. There's lots of different ways to get estradiol, which is the primary form of estrogen in the reproductive years. For progesterone, I think that oral progesterone is the most appropriate for okay. someone who's got a uterus 
That's what's shown to provide endometrial protection so that you don't have an increased risk of endometrial cancer with hormone therapy. And then testosterone is kind of a another thing to consider at this time. There's no FDA-approved way to get testosterone in women, and so we tend to use a compounded topical or transdermal formulation. Okay. And then for men, it tends to be also transdermal. It can be a shot that's used very commonly. And with pellets, I don't personally insert pellets. I think if you're someone who's got a really stable dose and you know uh, exactly what you need and you're not going to get overdose, pellets can be appropriate. And certainly they're more convenient than having to put a cream on each day. But what I see is a lot of people who go to a clinician that they think is an expert at bioidentical hormone therapy, who maybe did like a weekend conference on it, and then they get pellets inserted and then their levels go sky high, Mm -hmm. super physiologic, and I don't think that's appropriate. And what about the timeline? Is it a, or the time span? Is it for life or is it, is there a window? Because I heard some uh, expert uh, saying, the best is to do it during the perimenopause and then stop, or some other saying, hey, continue. What, what is your opinion about that? Well, my opinion is based on the science. So okay. the best that we have is, you know, the Women's Health Initiative, it was the wrong study in the wrong patients with the wrong medication at the wrong age, and yet it's the devil we know. So it's the largest randomized trial we have. We believe, based on the Women's Health Initiative, that you want to start hormone therapy within 10 years of menopause. Okay. So if you're someone who goes through menopause at 51, that would be hormone therapy until age 61. Beyond that, I think it becomes a negotiation probably every six to 12 months with your clinician, mm-hmm. with someone who's really knowledgeable about the latest data. I think you want to start it as soon as possible. So I like to start it in perimenopause, mostly for the brain effects. Mm -hmm. So we think that there's this 10-year window of opportunity when it comes to cardiovascular disease. If you look at the brain health effects, we believe it might be a little bit shorter. Mm -hmm. We don't have great evidence on this, but we think it might be five years. So, so basically starting uh, at the perimenopause and then you have a window for around 10 years, but again, discuss it with your clinician and uh, uh, do it with them. That's right. I mean, I, I started when I was in my 30s. I intend to take it until something better comes along. So I'll continue negotiating with the clinicians who prescribe it for yeah. me, but I, I suspect I'll be an Olympic user yeah. and I'll use it for decades. Okay. What about if we transition to um, men? Uh, Erectile dysfunction is a great thing to end on. But, you know, you mentioned before that erectile dysfunction can actually be a blessing in disguise. Yes. um, As a way that we might be able to identify some other things happening in the body that we can't see or feel as, as obviously. Would you mind going into a little more detail about that? Well, erectile dysfunction might be my favorite symptom because if you think of the penile artery, it's... um, very similar to the coronary arteries. And so if you start to have atherosclerosis, Mm -hmm. it can make you not have as strong an erection as you used to have. And I think that's a really critical symptom. There's a lot of shame around it. And I really want to make sure that we, you know, de-shame this conversation. Because if you're having trouble with erectile dysfunction, I would assume that it's atherosclerosis or subclinical atherosclerosis until proven otherwise. Mm -hmm. So go see your clinician if you have erectile dysfunction. I think that's critical. 
And the next steps could be trying to get like a scan if you're not on so, having your level cholesterol tested. Like what yeah. would you take from so that? So I, I practice precision medicine. I do a lot of testing. I think everyone at age 45 should have a coronary artery calcium scan. So that's a really simple test. Takes five minutes. You can self-order it. Mm-hmm. So you know, generally the cost is about 150 to 250 dollars, and it tells you how much calcification you have in your coronary arteries. So that's a really critical test. I do advanced lipid profiles, so not just kind of the, you know, the first generation of total cholesterol, HDL, LDL, and. Uh, triglycerides, but I'm looking at fractionation, I'm looking at lipo little a, I'm looking at ApoB. So I like to look at advanced lipid panels, I like to look at inflammatory panels, and then of course a hormone panel, since low testosterone is such a common cause of erectile dysfunction. So we want to do testosterone free and total, sometimes bioavailable, sex hormone binding globulin, estradiol, because a lot of men as they get older produce more estradiol and that can cause fatty deposits at the breasts as well as some other untoward effects. So that's how I would investigate it. There's also some other non-invasive imaging, like you can look at the um, carotid arteries, Mm -hmm. measure the intimal medial thickness. You can look at um, uh, peripheral blood flow and kind of pulse velocity. So there's lots of different ways that you can track those. Yeah, and I I just want to add that uh, a lot of the testing that you mentioned is our testing that uh, are uh, available today at uh, InstaTracker. And I think that uh, uh, if we're going to the beginning, I I think that uh, uh, having a baseline and having uh, more and more follow-up and understanding the trend that you have is uh, very important. And uh, if you ask me when to start is uh, today, even if you are uh, 20 or 30 or 40 or 97, I start as early as possible because then you will have your baseline and you will see the progress and try to understand and also allow the clinician to have a, a data-driven decision and not a, a decision based on his thinking about it. And it's going back to the maybe the end of one discussion that we had before. Um, so uh, I think that we got into time and the uh, uh, so I think that we can discuss forever, but uh, <laughs> we have a limited time today. Uh, so uh, the question is uh, about uh, if you have uh, one recommendation that you can uh, uh, provide for our audience, what it will be in order to uh, reach your uh, potential in health span and lifespan? What, what would you suggest them to do? I would say love your muscle. Track your muscle, measure your skeletal muscle, measure your lean body mass. Do it as early as possible. My preference would be that you start by 18 mm-hmm. and that you track that over time. Because I, I think that's that's really, it's the organ of health span. Yeah. And I think your point of we need to remarket, I hope, I see a lot more you know younger women not being afraid to lift heavy weights. Yes. Um, so I hope that some of that marketing is all already happening. Yeah. And by the way, yesterday I visited a, a gym here in uh, San Francisco, and they said that before the pandemic, uh, a lot of women went to classes and uh, at least in their gym. And now post pandemic, nobody is coming to the classes. All of them going to uh, to lift weights. Weight. I love it. And and uh, I I told them that that's that's amazing. And they are saying, and I see it also in my in the gym that I'm exercising in Boston, that you see more and more of the strengths and mm-hmm. less and less of the treadmill and uh, all of that. So I think that uh, 
uh, it's good. I, I, what I want to say, in my opinion, it's it's not only that. And I heard you, Sarah, saying uh, two third and third. You still need to do some cardio. So don't do only that. Uh, uh, VO2 max is very important. Maybe we'll discuss it in a, a different episode. Uh, but uh, VO2 max is uh, also uh, very important, and you need to do uh, some cardio for that. But I definitely agree with you about the uh, the strengths. And uh, uh, a lot of us are not doing it and not doing enough. Yeah. Now, my synthesis of the literature, where we are in 2023, is that your exercise ideally is spent two-thirds weightlifting, one-third cardio. I think that's the optimal balance. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, Good I, takeaway. I, I agree with that. Um, so, again, thank you so much. It was a pleasure uh, meeting you in person and hearing all the wisdom that you have. And uh, uh, I know that uh, Ashley and myself enjoy it, and I'm sure that our audience will uh, enjoy it. And uh, and hopefully we'll have another uh, session uh, soon. Yes, please. Thank you, Gil. Thank you so much. Thank Thanks, you. Ashley.